Welcome to the Miles to Memories podcast. I'm Sean Coomer, your host, joined today by Ian Snyder, Family Flies Free from Travel Update, also a senior contributor to Miles to Memories and a good friend of mine, somebody who knows his Miles and Points stuff. Ian, so glad to have you on the show. Is this your first time on the main podcast? Oh, good question. I think you had me on one other time. It's been a few years. Yeah, it's been a few years. Uh, Last week we had Benji on, and he hadn't been on, I think, in three years. So it's good that we're finally getting around to all the the contributors now that we kicked Mark out of the the mix. No, just kidding. But it's good that we're finally getting to to talk to you guys and so much cool stuff uh, to share. And you've been doing a lot of traveling, right? I have this past uh, past couple months. Not much on the horizon. I feel like I've stuffed most of my 2022 travel into the first couple months. Well, that's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of weird when you have all of your travel kind of like together and then you have long periods without doing it, which is something I struggle with. Is that something that you do? I mean, do you miss being on the road when you're you know, at home for a couple of months? I do sometimes. I'm not on the road for a couple of months. Usually it's back-to-back short trips. But um, after the last couple, I realized, like, you know what, it's time to be, time to get home and stay home and other things we tend to. So it goes both ways. Well, you did a trip recently to Scandinavia, which I believe was your first trip there, and then also to Switzerland and to Strasbourg, south of France. So a lot to talk about there, a lot of cool redemptions, a lot of cool tips along the way, because you love the, the travel stuff as well to share the tips. And I noticed uh, some of the your trip stuff you've written on Miles to Memories reviews and things like that, but also on Travel Update on Family Flies Free, you're uh, writing about some of the destination stuff as well, sharing pictures and stories and some of the cool things to see, like the disgusting food museum in Malmo, Sweden, right? Right. That was not on my radar until I got there and I had looked at a couple other places to see in town, only planning to be there for a couple of days, um, but that was a unique experience, to say the least. Yeah, the museum looked insane. What was it, $20 to get in, which you said it took about an hour to go through there. But you said they had samples and it got worse as you went along and that they have like, what, a puke area where like over 300 people have puked in this museum. This sounds, I mean, I have a really bad gag reflex, so I I imagine I would be one of those 300. At first I wondered, I'm like, did I just waste 20 bucks on this? Because it was... the first couple aisles, I'm like, this is kind of lame. It's the t- typical stuff I've seen. I'm aware of these foods. But you get about halfway into the museum, and there's a couple. The first moment I realized, like, oh my goodness, I want to hurl. Like, that first urge was at this, a specific point, I recall. So, I'm not going to say what it is, but so clearly, I'm like, that is so nasty. I want to puke now. And I didn't throw up. Um, made it the rest of it they have canisters of stuff that you can actually smell the food and that is bad enough but you get to the very end and they have samples of about two dozen different types of absolutely horrific disgusting food and i tried a couple things one of which i tried before knew it was safe safe enough it was a finnish or scandinavian nordic um, candy that tastes uh, in finnish i think it's called samyaki but uh, i don't know what it's called in sweden but it was gross, as gross as I remember. Um, but yeah, I almost tried the Hakarl Icelandic shark and decided that no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna risk puking up the pizza I'd just eaten about an hour before. Yeah, I can imagine not wanting to to lose your pizza. And I'll tell you, one of the things about Scandinavia that I don't like, I love Scandinavia. There's very few things I don't like. Is all the smoked weird foods that they have and the smell of some of that. All these weird smoked fishes you know, and a lot of other stuff. I even noticed in Finland that the people, because they eat so much smoked fish, have a smell coming off of them. Uh, it's a weird thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just, but I, but I noticed it. I was at Linamaki, which is an amusement park in Helsinki when I was there last year. And so I was in lines with people, you know, so in close contact with people and it's this smell and everybody has the smell and I have to imagine it's from their diet. So it's not a pungent smell or anything. It's just a noticeable smell that I have to think comes from the smoked fish. It has that sort of feeling to it. Not bad or disgusting. It's just, I don't know. But I I guess that's a pretty harsh place to survive that you have to figure out like smoking fish. And they love those weird tastes, even though to us, our Western palate, it just doesn't, I guess, or at least for me, it just doesn't uh, work. Yeah, I can do, I can do some of that, like smoked salmon. I really enjoy. There's some other types of 
a fish I like, but you're right. Some of the other options, it just gets weird fast and I can't, I can't stomach a lot of it. Yeah. I grew up with smoked salmon being Jewish. So I was like accustomed to that. And it's funny, right? Cause I love smoked salmon, but, and even smoked whitefish and some of the more traditional Jewish fishes that you will smoke, you know, cod or sable, but uh, yeah, you get me into like herring and all those weird things. My best friend loves pickled herring and it's just the most disgusting looking thing. And even in his refrigerator, he has like a jar of it and it's just, yeah, it, it turns my stomach to see it. I don't know why it's weird because to your point, I do like some smoked fish, uh, but uh, yeah, not, not the stuff. And when we were at the, in Copenhagen, when we were at the Clarion there, they had a free buffet that was for everybody. It was a really good buffet. One that's better than, you know, a lot of the $40, $50 buffets you see at other fancy hotels. And it was included for everybody. So you didn't need to have status or anything. But they ha must have had seven different types of smoked fishes. So I guess this is my uh, my soapbox I'm standing on, the, the smoked fish in Scandinavia. But I guess people probably want to hear more about that trip. So I think we'll, we'll start there. And so you went to what, Copenhagen and Malmo. And before I say anything else, Ian, in one of your posts, you said you learned the correct way to say Malmo. And I'm guessing it's not the way I'm saying it. So why don't you tell us? Yeah, I might, I might still butcher it. Um, I was trying to tell a guy um, in Copenhagen that I was heading over to when I said Malmo, Sweden. And he just kind of looked at me like I don't, did not understand. And I think the best I can do is Malmo. I think that's how you say it. But it was, it's, it's a different enough that he did not understand what I was trying to ask him. And I, most Danes speak good English, so clearly, whatever it is, I was way off. Yeah, it's really nice in Denmark to be able to just go anywhere and pretty much everybody speaks English. Uh, so if you're even getting a little bit off the beaten path, uh, you can generally get help. It's a pretty easy country uh, to, to travel to. And people don't know where Malmo is. I'm going to say the American uh, pronunciation because I don't know. I'll just keep messing it up over and over. But it's just over a bridge, over the water from Copenhagen, right? It's on the very border of Sweden. And, you know, what is it, a 20, 25-minute train ride from Copenhagen Central Station? Funny enough, it's, it's only like five or ten minutes longer to get over to Malmo versus going to downtown Copenhagen on the mass transit. It's, it's very close. I mean, you're... The airport's the last stop on the train um, before you head across the Orison Strait. And so you have one or two stops, and then you're at the central station in Malmö, Sweden. So it's really accessible from Copenhagen. That's why when I was planning just this long weekend trip, it was four full days, uh, I just decided to spend two in Copenhagen. Yeah, it almost feels like a suburb. I guess the only difference for cost-wise is that it's a different transit system. So you have to pay the, the train tickets, which are a bit more expensive than if you're staying on Copenhagen's Metro. Because I stayed at the Clarion by Copenhagen Airport last year. And I even said in my review that I would stay there again just to visit the city uh, because it's less than 20 minutes into the city uh, direct on the train line and the station is just steps from, from there. So I imagine it's probably a very similar kind of commute coming from Malmo than coming from the airport. There are some cool hotels in the middle of Copenhagen, but none of them look nice enough for me and they're very expensive. So I like the Clarion because... It was, what, 10,000 choice points, or maybe it was 20,000 choice points, or 10,000 thank you points transferred over, and it was like a $400 plus room. Now, you chose a hotel that I had been eyeing a long time in Malmo, a JDV hotel uh, that is only a category one, right? It did. So, yeah, I had two very different stays on this trip. In Malmo, I stayed at the JDV by Hyatt property, the Story Hotel, and there's a few different Story Hotel locations in Sweden. And this one was very new, and it's just a top handful of floors of a building uh, pretty close to the university there. I thought overall it was a solid hotel, especially for being only 5,000 points per night. It's definitely a deal. I mean, Mom was probably 25 to 30% cheaper cost-wise than Copenhagen, um, but this was like a much better points option, I thought, than I would have gotten had I tried to spend all my all my nights in Copenhagen just go there on a day trip. So it was, they have a good breakfast available to everyone. Um, not even, you don't even have to be a World of Hyatt elite. It's a complimentary buffet for all guests. They got an upgrade to their nicest room. A Little bit of unique design. You can read the review on Miles Memories. But uh, overall, I, I, really like, I really enjoyed the hotel. And where did you stay in Copenhagen? 
Ah, in Copenhagen, I since I have a bundle of Radisson points still, and it hurts because they have devalued multiple times over the past couple of years. I was sitting on about almost 500,000, and I decided to burn, I think I spent 170,000 Radisson points for two nights at the Radisson Royal, I think it's the Radisson Royal Collection, Copenhagen. Is that the one that's right near Tivoli Gardens? Because there's a couple different Radisson Blues there. Yes. Yeah, that's a cool location. I mean, right near the Central Station, and yeah, really cool. Yep. Super convenient. You're a minute or two from Copenhagen Central Station. Um, you walk down the block and across the street, and there's the entrance to Tivoli Gardens. Um, you walk just a couple more minutes since the beginning of like the heart of the old town. Newhaven is probably 20 minutes by foot, or you can just catch the metro up there. Um, I walked a lot around Copenhagen um, during the two days I was there. Had to stay warm because it was January, and it was it was quite cold. It wasn't as cold as I thought it could be, but... Yeah, I would think that uh, the first mistake in going to Scandinavia or going to Copenhagen would be going in January because it has to be just brutally cold. And then the second mistake, as you pointed out when you sent me a picture while you were there, is that Tivoli Gardens was closed and you weren't able to enjoy it, which, you know, that disappoints me. Breaks I know my heart. it disappoints you. Even here's this, here's the, this is probably going to disappoint you even more. Had it been open, I don't think I would have taken the time to go there with only two days in the city. I'd rather spend the time doing other things than... That's insane, place. though, because that's like the center of their culture in Copenhagen. Like, there's no more cultural thing to do. I mean, you can see the old buildings and stuff, but, you know, that is really uh, been central to their culture, especially in summertime, festivals, everything, dating back a couple hundred years almost. So shame on you, Ian. We'll move on before we uh, have this big disagreement. Because I have another bone to pick with you, because you were in Strasbourg, France, and didn't go to Europa Park, which is another amazing world-class amusement park, which is in Roost, Germany, not far away from there. But, uh, you know, being in Tivoli, it was closed, so I guess you didn't have a choice there. But what did you think about the sites? I mean, there's so many like grand buildings in Copenhagen. You know, you have the Royal Palace, you have all the waterways and you can take a boat tour, lots of cool old churches. Uh, you have the whole area of the city that's technically like lawless or what's it called? I forget the name of, of that part of the city. I don't know what it's called either. I spent most of my time uh, Konigsberg Castle or Palace. Absolutely fantastic. I spent my time visiting that there's a handful of, of you can tour the inside and a handful of other sites on the uh, the same grounds um, I was also into Rosenberg Palace or Castle as well it's funny um, the post I wrote about the Copenhagen Castles was essentially like these are not the castles that you would kind of envision in your mind they're more like just palaces but both are very beautiful in different ways from different eras both very much worth visiting Went to the Round Tower and Newhaven and uh, wandered the streets of the old town. Also went up to the old fort on a morning walk um, on the north end of town. Um, really just in, enjoyed walking the streets, which is the main main thing I do, and finding like nice places to eat to experience the uh, food of a new new city. Yeah, Copenhagen, one of the most incredible cities on earth. Uh, it's so walkable, so much history. Uh, I when I was there last year, we took the Copenhagen Pass which included like hundreds of different things, including like Tivoli Gardens, but a lot of the museums, the zoo we got to go to because we spent four days there and just absolutely loved it. Uh, I guess on a side note, we also cruised out of there. So it was a fun city to kind of cruise out of as well. If anybody's looking to do that, super easy. The cruise dock is very close to the city and they have amazing public transport everywhere, whether it's the trains, the buses. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And if you get that Copenhagen Pass, it actually makes visiting Copenhagen pretty cheap which it's an incredibly expensive city. All the food, everything is yes. just significantly more expensive than it is here. Yeah, the, the, I knew the cost would be high, but that was one thing that still was unexpected. Like you're spending a lot on food. Um, if you go to any any decent to nicer place, it's easy $50 on lunch without even thinking about it. Like you have to be really choosy to find somewhere that, that's going to be cheaper. So I split things between a couple really cheap places just to keep costs down and then also made sure I, I hit up a couple Danish restaurants while I was there. Yeah. And I, that's where miles and points come in, right? Being able to save in my case, you know, staying at the Clarion free hotels would have been $400 a night. It was great. You get the Radisson blue to finally burn those terrible Radisson points yep. uh, from years ago. 
also the Story Hotel. So then you don't have the hotel issues. And in our case, doing the Copenhagen Pass, all of our sort of entry was covered. And I was able to use Ultimate Rewards to redeem that through the portal. So I didn't even have to pay cash for that. So at least it made when I was buying food and the other things we had to spend money on, at least it made it somewhat palatable because you're not spending crazy amounts of money on the hotels or other stuff. But let's move on to how you got there. So for this trip, how did you fly there? How did you fly back? And how did you book it? Yeah, that's a good question since uh, this was a more unique flight, uh, at least for me. This is my second time ever flying premium economy. And uh, a lot of premium economy And you flew on SAS? I did, yeah, SAS. I figured since I was was trying to... I essentially booked it on a deal. I found that SAS had a sale at one point um, for premium economy. Uh, fares were going for between about 650 and 850 uh, round trip out of San Francisco to various destinations in in Northern Europe. I decided rather than trying to connect anywhere, which would have been cheaper in some cases, I booked the nonstop to visit Copenhagen, maximize the time that I had um, there. And I think I spent about $700 just over that. Um, but I booked it using Chase Ultimate Rewards through their travel portal, which has proven to be a mistake in the past because of all the pain and difficulties I've been through, but this time it worked out well. Even even when SAS shifted their flight schedule, the Ultimate Rewards Help Desk was able to get me on a different flight that still fit with uh, within the days I had. So it uh, worked out nicely. So I flew premium economy round trip. Uh, it would have been about $700, $720, I think, cash fare, and then booked using Ultimate Rewards for 1.25 cents each. So I mean, you could say that's cash value of $600 or I'm just ballparking. Um, but I thought for the product, it was well worth it. Would I pay the typical rates for that product? No. Typically it goes from more like 1300 to 2000 or more round trip, and there's no way I would pay that for um, premium economy. But it was, it was pleasant, a step up from economy both ways. Now, SAS has a very unique feature where they allow you to bid for upgrades, and they send you, I think, a link. It's been a few years since I've flown them, but... Uh, I know you bid and didn't get into business class, but how did that whole bidding process work? Yeah, it's really straightforward. They sent me a a uh, email ahead of time and went, "Oh, that's cool. I'll see if I can I can bid." So, first flight, like your minimum bid is three hundred dollars. I thought, okay, for ten hours, I'll bid three hundred bucks to um, see if I can upgrade. I've flown SAS business before. That's my only other SAS flight. It was the same flight from San Francisco to Copenhagen in business class. And I really liked it. What was perplexing was I think Ryan used to contribute to Miles Memories flew that also and did not like it on the same aircraft. So we have very different opinions of what of that product. Um, but I bid three hundred dollars and found out day of that I did not I did not win. So which was fine by me. I, I got to fly premium economy. Um, reading tips on that, bidding a little over the minimum. 15, 20, 25 dollars of the minimum is probably the way to go because if anyone else enters the minimum, you're paying just a bit more and hopefully will win. But on the return, the minimum bid was $800 and I thought there's no way that's worth it. Um, I will suffer in premium economy just fine. Thank you. Yeah, I think it all really depends. But yeah, anytime you have those bid to upgrade and it has like a slider with the minimum, usually if you can go two steps above that, you know, depending on the increment. Because there's are people that are strategizing and they're only going with the minimum. And then there's other people that are going with the minimum, but then they're like, I'm just going to go one above that. I mean, this is just my theory, right? I have no proof other than I have been accepted on certain things. I got accepted on a Royal Caribbean upgrade to that suite last year, you know, $6,000 suite for, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, uh, but similar, similar kind of system. And in fact, I think a lot of these systems use the same software. They use a company that handles it and... It always feels a lot the same with sliders and, and different sort of things. A lot of the hotels do it too. So yeah, definitely don't bid the minimum and expect to get accepted unless you know that, you know, it's a very empty flight or something is, you know, going to really be in your favor in that way. Because there will be, other, especially at $300, right? Anybody's going to pay $300 to fly business class on that long of a flight. It was a really empty flight. And that was the thing. Um even when I talked to the flight attendant on the flight, business was, was um, I think, basically full. By the if they're, if they're selling every seat by bid, then it, no wonder it should be with, with that sort of price. But um, there weren't many people behind the curtain on that flight. 
So it made sense why they were offering a lower, lower bid. Yeah, I got to fill those uh, seats, maximize revenue, all of that. All right, so you also did a separate trip. So you flew to Scandinavia, came back, but you also did a separate trip to Switzerland and to France that we talked about earlier. And I guess on your flight out to Switzerland, you got to fly on Swiss Air business class? I did, yeah. So this one was a bit different. The trip was longer than I would have normally had. Uh, my kids were with their mom for the week, so I thought I'd visit Europe for eight days or so. And I flew Swiss to Zurich, um, booked it with uh, mileage plus miles, which is pretty generic, uh, lame thing to do, uncreative, but it, it worked since I got the connecting segment from my home airport um, easily in the same itinerary. Uh, connected through San Francisco, through nonstop on Swiss in Swiss business class from San Francisco to Zurich, and it was I think I paid seventy five thousand uh, United miles for the one way ticket. And so that gave you access to the United Polaris Lounge in SFO, correct? Yes, it did, and that hands down is the best lounge at San Francisco. Um, I've been to the Centurion many times, but not since it has been refreshed. I guess the secret issue there is I no longer have a platinum card or business platinum card, so um, you can take my travel hacking card as well if you'd like. But <laughs> Benji no is going to descend on this recording right now. <laughs> he probably will. But um, I just decided it's very much not worth it to me to keep that premium card, so I ditched both and uh, got I I routinely get no retention offers, so they do not retain me. Um, so I'm without a platinum. So uh, no more Centurion for me. Um, I've also visited the Alaska Lounge, the American Lounge, uh, the Delta, Delta Sky Club, uh, and a couple of the other lounges in Concourse A. And the Polaris just blows them all away. Um, it's inaccessible unless you're flying premium cabin with United, so that's the catch. There's no priority pass. There's no other way to access it. Um, you, you must be flying business class or first class uh, on a same-day departing flight out of San Francisco long haul, either United or Star Alliance Partners. Yeah, United sucks in that way in that you don't get lounge access in a connecting city. I remember years ago flying Las Vegas to Los Angeles or San, or San Francisco, I don't remember where, and then on to Asia and trying to go to the United Club in Las Vegas. They're like, no, you only get to go in your international, you know, gateway city, whatever they called it. Uh, but so, yeah, with Polaris, uh, I imagine that's that's pretty good. And so they have a full... And this is more like a traditional international uh, sort of high-end lounge, right? They have a full restaurant and and yes. other stuff. What is your like bottom line takeaway from Polaris? Is it worth people pursuing to see these lounges if they really love lounges? Or is it just kind of a, like a nice perk before uh, heading out? If I had the option of booking a ticket that, that connected me through a city um, that had this versus a city that did not... All other things being equal, I'd definitely do it. Um, and maybe not even being equal. Maybe if it cost me a little bit more time or wasn't quite the flight I wanted, I might do it. Um, they have full sit-down dining. Um, the important point there is make sure you go up to the counter and ask for a reservation and get a slot because I almost didn't get to enjoy it because I would have run out of time. Uh, the seating's pretty limited to SFO, as busy as it gets, so uh, make sure that you reserve that. In other ways, yeah, it's very much like a, a full international lounge. They have showers, um, they have a quiet, quiet, quiet suites, uh, like napping area um, in the downstairs. Both of those are in the downstairs level. Uh, full staffed bar, tons of tons of, of space, solid, good quality buffet food as well. Um, even if you don't do the sit down dining, so I had I had a little bit to eat when I first got there. Then worked for a couple hours. And they went to the, the desk and asked about sit-down dining. And she's like, "Can you are you able to do it before your flight? I'm like, I think so. So I, I, I was not quite according to their cutoff, but I told them I could still make it. And I, and I still managed to, to be in and out in time. I still make the flight. Yeah, so, I mean, it's United Clubs are pretty lame overall. This is an entirely different level. And it's, it's quite nice. All right, so speaking of lame, let's talk about Swiss business class and the fact that they still have those old seats that do not all have direct aisle access, which in 2023 is, I don't know, it just feels very dated. Although they, you know, they have, what is it, the two-in-one configuration? So every other row has like a throne seat on the window, and then every other row has two seats. And, uh, you know, there's some good seats in that configuration, some bad ones, the throne seat being great. 
Uh, if you're in an aisle seat kind of on the outside on one of the middle seats, those can be really bad, which I've been stuck with before on those types of seats. But how was the Swiss experience? I know a lot of people like flying this airline and, you know, they're able to overlook the product. And maybe I'm just making a big deal about the product and you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Um, there's definitely the issues you mentioned. Um, I picked the, that window seat that does not have direct aisle access. Um, and I know a lot of people would not do that. But I really like the window seat. I tried to score one of the throne seats. Those are the, the in the 221 configuration, that's the one. Um, and it alternates either side. It has much more space, more privacy. You're not right next to someone. Um, but I was unable to get one of those. Uh, the cabin was completely full on the flight. So um, by the time that I got to SFO, I mean, there's no, no option of changing seats. So I was stuck with the one I picked. Um, the soft product is excellent. The catering is good. The service is good. Um, I really, in that way, it's one of the better business class products I've flown. But the seat, you're right. There's a couple of them. The, the one of the aisle seats in the middle, it would be the worst choice. The one that has no buffer between you and the aisle. Um, that looks just looks terrible. Um, the window one is sort of the same design. You don't have much space but you at least have the privacy of being at the window. Being pinned in was a bit of a problem, but it worked out fine. The lady next to me was friendly and we just chatted for a while through dinner and then um, both of us decided to lay, lay down and take a nap at the same time. So I just made sure I had time to get up when, when I knew that she was gonna be up and down. So uh, we didn't bug each other after that and flight went fine. So um, it would be best if you booked those seats with a plus one. I guess the big problem with that, right, is that the experience is so different for different passengers. I've flown on those seats in a throne seat, and it's an amazing experience. It feels very private. It almost feels like a suite. It doesn't have a door, but, you know, it almost feels like that suite experience that you're getting on some of the newer products. You're a little far from the window because it's the throne seat's more in the middle, but you can still reach the window and look out. But, yeah, to your point, the one on the outside in the middle... Uh, I flew Etihad years ago where I booked it last minute. I was in India and I was flying into uh, Abu Dhabi. And so I booked it last minute and I got the last business class seat on the plane. And it was that seat. And it was just miserable. It was terrible. It was a terrible seat. You were so exposed to the aisle that anytime anybody walked by, they're hitting you. It was just like it flew. It felt like I was flying an economy almost sitting in an aisle seat. So, uh, you know, definitely good seats and bad seats. I like products where... You know, pretty much every seat's the same. They're never always going to be the same, but where you're getting the same general experience, aisle access. But it's good to know that the service is good. And honestly, Ian, I would not not fly it because of those seats. I would, I, I much prefer a good airline, a good experience. And you know, those seats are pretty good. So I'm I'm making a big deal out of nothing as usual, as we like to do in this hobby, right? To get nerdy about that kind of stuff. But how did you book? How did you book it? Uh, that's the one was seventy five thousand United miles. So. Uh, oh, that's pretty, right. That was the United Miles. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty cleaned out of those um, now after that trip. But um... All right. So let's pivot to the return while we're talking flights and getting nerdy about planes and stuff like that. How did you get back and how did you book it? So that one's a bit more creative and a bit more um, my MO in terms of what I like to book. So uh, coming back, I booked United Polaris, but I did not use my United Miles. Uh, I use Turkish Miles and Smiles, which is a program I really like. I have used it many times now to book short-haul flights in the U.S. because you can fly anywhere domestically for just 7,500 miles, including Hawaii and Alaska. Um, but I booked business class on United Metal, flying their 777, so Polaris Business, for just 45,000 miles and smiles. And I earned those uh, a couple years ago through City Premier Points, and I transferred them over to Turkish a while back for a different award that I ended up having to cancel. So I was very glad to use them. Where can you transfer miles from to Turkish so that people know if they're interested in this, like where they can transfer their points from? Uh, you can transfer uh, cap Capital One miles to Turkish Airlines, I believe. And you can also transfer city thank you points, of course, which is the way that I am. And, you know, in the past, I know booking Turkish was not always the easiest option. There sometimes was email addresses people having various levels of success when calling different offices. What's the latest with booking, you know, United via Turkish? And is it still like a daunting task for a lot of people? 
Or, I mean, I know you think the juice is worth the squeeze, but has it gotten any easier than it was before? And are people really making a big deal about having to call or email? Um, if you have to call, it is quite a pain. But in this case, I was able to book it online. So Turkish site has gotten better. If the option you want does come up online, it usually doesn't have problems booking the partner flight, as long as the availability is there. Sometimes the inventory will be different from what you see on other sites, but booking online in this case proved to be just fine. It, I was done in a couple minutes. Calling though is a pain in the neck. I, that's the way I've most typically booked flights and it's become more of a hassle to where I do it less and less. Yeah, I, I wish everything was available online. I mean, 2023, we're in a much better position for online booking than we were, let's say, five years ago, 10 years ago. You know, it used to be that for almost every partner award for any program you were calling in and having to deal with all that stuff. We also have like things like point.me that allows you to do searches across multiple programs at once. So I feel like the whole ecosystem of booking with miles and points has gotten easier as more things have gone online. And But, you know, not every program is going to be doing that and not everything is going to be easy. And there's a reason things are cheaper a great deal. If something is widely accessible to everybody, chances are that great deal is going to die. See recent devaluations on like Alaska, for example, for Japan Airlines. Uh, all of a sudden, overnight it dies. Alaska did a, few, a similar thing with Emirates first years ago where easily bookable online becomes a popular option. Too many people do it. It dies. So things that are really great value tend to stick around because they're less accessible. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage, which... Ian does, and I still avoid phone calls, so I have not booked any Turkish <laughs> awards on United, although hard to argue with that value for sure. It is hard to argue. So there's a few other things I want to talk about with you on this show, but let's talk about Zurich for a second, because you did stay at the very aspirational Park Hyatt Zurich, and that's a, pro that's a property a lot of people want to stay at, and I forget if that's one of the ones that moved up to Category 8 last time, or... I know, or is it moving up to Category 8 right now this year? I believe it's moving up to Category 8 this year because I – it must have because I used my Category 1 through 7 free night that I earned when I hit 60 nights uh, last year. So I booked one of the two nights using the certificate, and I painfully shelled out 30,000 Hyatt points for the second. That's not the sort of booking I normally do, but it was, um, it was an aspirational stay. And there's not a whole lot of other – cheap op options obviously in Zurich it's very expensive as well yeah it seems like on your trips you chose like the most expensive places to to visit this year uh between you know Copenhagen and and Zurich uh so what what is your overall takeaway is that property worth it it's sad that it's going to category eight and not just that right Hyatt really killed a lot of hotels by moving them to category eight this year uh, because you can't use those certificates anymore. There's no certificate that you can use, not to mention they're going from 30,000 to 40,000. So even if you wanted to use points, you know, it's 25% more points. That's a lot of points, 40,000 points. You know, even if you're conservative and you say, hi, it's worth one and a half cents each, that's $600 worth of points a night. And obviously those hotels are really nice and they have really high cash prices, especially now. So I guess my question to you is, was it worth you know, making that kind of splurge of a redemption for those extra points. And, you know, what did you think of the hotel bottom line? Uh, bottom line, it is a super nice hotel. It, I was glad, as I usually am, when I am able to burn certificates for at such a nice property. Um, I was very glad I did it. The breakfast is absolutely fantastic. Um, service is top notch. The selection is excellent. They, as a globalist, they let you order from the a la carte menu in addition to everything in the buffet. The coffee's excellent. I mean, everything about it was was fantastic. I hung out and read for a while in the in the lobby bar as well, which is a cool space. Um, and then the the room itself, I got an upgrade to a junior suite. Beautiful room, uh, great service during the stay. It's just it's funny because it's beyond what I way beyond what I typically um, book. I am totally the guy that in most cases is very happy booking a Hyatt place because it's consistent and cheap. Um, so this is my first day in years at a Park Hyatt. Uh, looking back, I think I would have been better served by not booking it the second night. So using the certificate to stay my first night. And then with the itinerary that I, I ended up developing, um, I ended up not being in Zurich as much as I thought I was going to. 
And I think I should have picked uh, some other property in Lucerne for another night because that's where I spent my first day. So where did you go on this trip? And what were the highlights of what you did on this trip in France and Switzerland? So I spent two nights in Zurich. Um, I didn't actually spend that much time in Zurich, ultimately. Uh, I took two day trips from there. Um, the first to Lucerne and Mount Rigi. And Mount Rigi's across the lake from Lucerne. You head out on a, on a ferry across the, the water first. takes about an hour. And then you can take a tram all the way up the mountain and then hike the last little bit. Beautiful views. It was an absolutely gorgeous day, uh, the day that, that I went up there. And I have to imagine it is way more popular in the summer because there were still a, a decent number of people up there in the, in the winter. Um, there's a little bit of snow at the top, but it was still accessible. The second day I went to Schaffhausen, which is on the north uh, border of Switzerland. It was a very, very cute little town. And next to it is the Rhinefall, which is, I think, the largest waterfall by volume in Europe. Probably going to get corrected on that one. But... Um, it's, it, it's something like that. There's <laughs> it's, no comment section for the podcast, so it's nope, okay. Nope. Yeah, so after that I spent, so two nights in Zurich, then I took the train to uh, Strasbourg, uh, France, and really, really love Strasbourg. Where you it's, skipped going to Roost, Germany, instead of going to Europa Park, you decided to do cultural stuff. Shame, shame. So what, what did you do <laughs> in Strasbourg? Um, went to the cathedral, of course, because it was for, I believe, centuries the tallest in Europe, I think until this, either the 1700s or 1800s, you have to do astronomical clock tour. They close the cathedral briefly around noon, and you get to learn all about the clock that was essentially rebuilt there. And it is spectacular. It is so, it was the guy's life. He spent his entire life basically studying and understanding how to design this thing. Um, it's well worth the one or two euros that you pay and see it, it's, it's incredible. Um, Strasbourg is just an amazingly beautiful city. It's extremely walkable. The, the section of town with all the half-timbered houses, I think on the south side is Petit France, and it's, it's very much worth, worth exploring. Um, I, just, I just enjoyed every bit. I took so many photos there. It's, it's one of those towns that you could just wander and you want to have your camera out every moment. So um, The boat tour there is nice too because you take a little loop around the whole um, whole city island. The bulk of the old city is just on one island in the middle of the river. Uh, that was really cool. Yeah, and I definitely skipped the amusement park that I did not know existed a short distance away. Second most uh, visited amusement park in all of... It's more of a theme park, actually. It's really, uh, other than Disneyland Paris, probably the most famous, biggest... It's like Europe's homegrown Disneyland. Let's put it that way. And uh, there's like... 15 different lands and they're all themed to different European countries and they have amazing food from all over Europe. It's actually a really cool park and it's, you know, owned by, uh, by a German company that manufactures roller coasters. Uh, but the, the family going back years has built this park like 60, 70 years. So it really is like the Disneyland of Germany, uh, Europa park. So if you're ever in the area with family and, uh, it makes sense, it's a, it's a really cool place to visit and it's in the very South of Germany not far from Strasbourg, not far from the Swiss border, kind of where the three countries come together. I don't, I'm, I, I can't visualize it in my head, but I know there's a point where those three countries come very close to each other, and that's where where Roost is. So one other flight I wanted to talk about is you recently got to fly on AA Flagship First, uh, which is a product that's going away. That's on their A321T, uh, and for people who don't know the history of it. They American Airlines launched that, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago with the idea that it was going to be the best domestic first class product. And they launched it on routes like L.A. to JFK and San Francisco to JFK. And it's a three, you know, or really a four class kind of configuration. Uh, there's regular economy and then you have, you know, main cabin extra with the extra legroom. And then you have a business class, which has two, two. Uh, because it's a single aisle plane with live flat seats. And then you have a first class, which is basically similar to their international business class that you see on their wide body planes, a uh, sort of like a reverse herringbone lay flat seat. I did fly this product several years ago. Flying, I flew Hong Kong to JFK. And then on the same award, I tacked on JFK to LAX. And it was a lot of extra flying to go fly that. 
and I ended up getting deathly ill in Hong Kong. By the time I got to JFK, uh, I'm lucky they even let me on the plane as sick as I was, uh, but I you know, needed to get home. And so it was miserable. So all I did was like just lay there in death. But I remember really enjoying the product. And unfortunately or fortunately, American has announced that they're coming out with a new product, a new business class or a first class suite for these planes. And that product, the current flagship first is going away, what, in 2024, starting in 2024? Yeah, I think it started in 2024. Um, I tried to book it again because... um... I mean, going back to what we talked about devaluations, uh, Etihad is another airline that has had some recent devaluations, and I wanted to book it even though I'd just flown it using Etihad guest miles because you can book flagship, sorry, you could book flagship first. This option is no longer available for just 25,000 Etihad miles one way, and I missed the window by a day. I had already transferred the miles, and I decided to go to bed because I was tired, instead of staying up and calling them and booking the thing. So I missed out on that. But yeah, I, I could still see the that there was availability through December of this year. So I think it's early 2024 they're going to start making that transition. And it's to a business class, and it will no longer be a three-class plane. Yeah, it's going to be similar to what the new Delta One suites, or it's kind of so. the same idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It should be nicer business class than the business, than the business class that's on the A321T right now, uh, which is like a two-by-two business. So it should be a, a nice step up from that, um, but it's not going to be. There's not going to be a separate first class cabin. So it'll be different. Now, have you flown JetBlue Mint, and how would this? If so, how would this compare? I have not flown Mint, so I can't. I can't give a comparison between those. Um, I would hope that flagship first would be better, but I, like I said, I, from from what I see in the at least the hard product, I think I'd prefer the. Uh, flagship first seat. Yeah, I think it's not even a comparison if you're talking about the old Mint product. Now, I haven't flown on the new Mint product, which is, you know, a similar updated version with suites and things like that. But I do think, you know, basically, if you're trying to figure out what this product is, the flagship first product that they currently have, if you want to try it before it goes away, like I said, it's very similar to their international business class reverse herringbone products. I mean, it is almost exactly the same. There are some tweaks to the seat, but as far as like the the seat experience, the size of the seat, everything else, it's pretty much in line. If you've flown AA business class on any of their wide bodies, you know, you're going to pretty much know, or even Cathay or any of those carriers that have the reverse herringbone seats. So uh, it's definitely worth it. Now they still have the, what, flagship first service that you get at the airport as well, which is special, you know, lounge access and stuff like that, right? They do. Um, my... The bummer was that I didn't get to experience that because I flew it departing from San Francisco. And while they offer the flagship first product, San Francisco does not have a flagship first lounge experience. And that was the reason I was trying to book a separate ticket later in the year to fly it back from JFK on a quick weekend that I could make it work um, to have that experience before that goes away as well. So yeah, you have to be very selective where you fly in order to enjoy that. And unfortunately in San Francisco, they only have the Admirals Club, which of course you get access to, but it's just a, a plain old domestic lounge. Yeah, I think the lounge experience is all part of it. And I know the the lounges I've been to. So in LA, I've been to their flagship first, but they've re-renovated it since then. And same with JFK. Um, I think they've redone it again in the last couple of years, even though I they had just done it maybe six, seven years ago when I flew that product. So I don't know, but they have full restaurant service. They're really good lounges. They're flagship first. It's definitely a huge step up over an Admiral's Club or even their you know normal business class offering. So I recommend it. And I think it's a unique product for people who are kind of nerdy into that stuff. And to your point, that three-class plane is going away and that sort of domestic service won't be coming back. You're going to just go back to kind of a traditional economy and then premium, even though it's going to be a step up, you know, ish with the with the the door and and the full suite. So yeah, and there's a full write up of your review and everything on milestomemories.com and anything we reference that there's a write up, we'll we'll throw links in the show notes so you guys can dive in deeper about Ian's trips to to Scandinavia, down to to Switzerland and France and all the products and everything else. He's written up a lot between 
uh, travel update and miles to memories, a lot of this, and we'll, we'll throw the links down in the description. Now, Ian, you are from a little town called Ferndale, California, Damn. which is uh, a, a town that I, I, what's what's the thing that I, I don't want to put this in in your mouth. I think I know what Ferndale is most known for, but I think that I'm probably skewed uh, about that. What do you think Ferndale, California, is most known for? It's the Victorian Village. That's what we're being. That's what we are known for being. It's not Guy Fieri. Not Guy Fieri. No. <laughs> uh, honestly, you're probably right, though. He is probably the reason that um, when I do talk to people outside our area they're like oh that's where guys from i was like yes it's where guys from now can we move on so anytime this is what what you guys don't know out there listeners is anytime i come across anything guy fieri related i just send it to ian like before we recorded the show i came across an article that said guy fieri is doing away with his customary look and bowling shirt or something i don't know and of course i told ian we should record a whole podcast about that because we know he's uh, he's obsessed with Guy Fieri, but I got to visit you in Ferndale last year, and your point is absolutely correct. The Victorian houses in this little town are amazing, and this is what a couple hours away from San Francisco by car. Uh, more than a couple, we're five hours north okay. of San Francisco by car. So um, yeah, it's it's a trek. That's why I try to fly that as much as I can because it's a nice little less than an hour hop. Yeah, and I want to talk about the airport thing as our, our final tip for people before you go, because I know it can be challenging flying in and out of a small airport. But real quick about Ferndale, a cute little town. Uh, I have some family connections there. I've had family that had lived there on and off. So I'd heard a lot about Ferndale, but never been there. And uh, Ian gave me a great tour of the main street, but cool Victorian uh, architecture on the main street and just the redwood trees around there. So many redwoods in that area. And we really enjoyed it. Last year when we did our a road trip up the coast from San Diego, basically to, to Canada, almost to Canada, to Seattle, let's say along the coast. And, you know, that was a portion of it. And I just remember just loving, we did a couple Redwood hikes. They were fantastic. Ferndale is a cool little city. And, you know, Ferndale is what, near a couple other cities, Arcata and Eureka, and you guys share this airport, which is, you know, what, which is very small. And the only carrier is United. Is that right? Not technically anymore. We have uh, Avelo as well, who flies uh, a few times per week to Burbank. So we technically have two carriers there right now. Uh, but United is the bulk of the service, and they fly to San Francisco a few times a day, to Los Angeles once or twice a day, and to Denver once per day. So you can hit United's hubs in the west from here, but um, it there's difficulties. I also forgot to mention Bigfoot, uh, Ian, when talking about oh, that's Ferndale a, and Humboldt County. That's probably what it's most famous for, at least that that's general a Humboldt area. Thing. Yeah. yeah, Bigfoot yeah. and cannabis. That's Humboldt. Yeah. It's not Ferndale. That's Humboldt, though. No, yeah, yeah. It's Well, Ferndale is in that general area. All right, so last tip. You have to fly out of this small airport all of the time, and award availability can be really hard from these smaller, more regional airports. And, you know, I imagine... I struggle sometimes with Las Vegas. It's a huge airport, but we don't have a lot of the connections that uh, some airports have. I can imagine like it's got to be 10 times worse flying from a small airport. So how do you overcome that in finding these itineraries? And what are some tips that you could give people who are continually struggling with having their hometown airport be you know very small and limited with the amount of flights? Yeah, Arcata is tough because a couple of the routes are much harder to snag. Um, Arcata to Denver is much more difficult to book in terms of award availability. Um, so sometimes it's just the route. If the route's more popular, um, there's less there's there are less awards available. I am pretty fortunate most of the time that I manage to snag something to from San Francisco on the days that I want. Um, even including this last trip to uh, Switzerland, France, and Germany, that Turkish ticket that I booked coming back on United. It did not include the final segment up to Arcata. And so I had to book that separately. And I did it, I think, only three or four days out. I was already in Europe, and I hadn't booked that last segment. And um, that is my other tip. Wait until last minute in some case, because United will dump seats on certain routes. And that has managed to save me uh, a handful of times the past couple of years. So I only I booked it a few, few days out. And short haul, my tip there is to use Life Miles. 
if you're within one life miles region in the US, it's typically about 7,500 miles. For some reason, they have that hop priced at just 6,500 miles one way. And the cash prices are usually 250 or more for a one-way ticket. So it's, it's extremely good value. That's uh, good to know. And Life Miles, are it's a cool program because it's so easy. to They transfer from almost everywhere. And, you know, it's not the perfect program for everything, but it's certainly a program I've used uh, quite often in, in utility. And, you know, it's very easy to transfer miles over there. It's very easy to use them uh, when, when it works out well. And, yeah, I can imagine, you know, all the, the struggle would be real. How many times have you just not been able to find a flight and just had to drive five hours to San Francisco? Oh, Less than 10. I mean, probably, probably say five-ish. I'm just going to ballpark there. Um, sometimes it's an itinerary where I found a good deal on a non-Star Alliance ca- carrier, either award or cash out of San Francisco. So obviously I can't tack on that segment. And I have tried to fly that separately, so separate ticket. Um, but there's times where that hasn't come up. I've been I've been fortunate lately. The past couple of years I've managed to get pretty much everything I needed Um at least the day that I wanted, not the ideal time sometimes, but at least the day that I wanted. Well, perfect. Well, Ian, I think this has been a fun conversation. I enjoyed talking about your trips, your bookings. I feel like there's a lot of good takeaways here and a lot of great information. And you know your stuff, you know how to book stuff. You're one of the best in the miles and points game. And I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this stuff. Where can people find you when they're not listening to this fine podcast? Uh, You can find me um, most easily on Twitter at Family Flies Free. Fly is F-L-Y-S. Uh, that's my handle. Um, you can also catch my content on travel at travelupdate.com. It's another boarding area blog. And then also uh, my stories and reviews, etc. at milesmemories.com. And uh, for this show, you can find everything we do at mtmpodcast.com. Links to subscribe, links to apply for cards if you want to support the show. We have all of our posts, our podcasts, our videos are at milestomemories.com. And I'm at milestomemories all over social media, whatever platform you're looking at. Just search at milestomemories. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining me. Thanks to everybody out there listening. Talk to you guys next time. Thanks, Sean.